You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad all of you are able to join us here. A lot of you are first-time guests. We're glad to have you here. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor, and it is our pleasure to have you join us today. Some of you are watching us online at home. We got one pastor, Pastor Eric, who just emailed me this week. He's watching us from Africa. He joins in every single week. He says our services have been a blessing to him. So Pastor Eric, here's a shout-out to you. And uh, yeah, give it up for Pastor Eric. And so we're glad that you're able to join us here today. Um, I grew up in a family with um, four siblings, mom and dad, lots and lots of cousins, aunts and uncles, and grandparents. And what's interesting is as I grew up with all of these family, we were very close. I had interactions with all of them. We hung out together. But of all my relatives, there were two relatives that I rarely ever had a conversation with. And those would be both of my grandfathers. My grandfather on my mother's side divorced my grandmother when I was very, very young. So I never had an encounter with him until I was a junior in high school. And it was a very brief conversation. He spoke very strong Cajun French and we could hardly connect but there was not much to that conversation at all. My grandfather on my dad's side died when I was in the fifth grade. But even up to that point, I can't ever remember a time where my grandfather on my dad's side ever had a conversation with me. I can't ever remember a time where he even held me or played with me or wrestled with me or had anything to do with me. And so when all of my friends would get together and they would talk about their time with their grandfather going fishing or hunting or playing golf or baseball, I really had nothing to say. Now that I'm a grandparent and I have three grandchildren, I am so excited to spend time with them. In fact, this afternoon, I'm leaving for Atlanta and I'll be there until Friday. I'm coming back on Friday, but I get to hang out with my grandkids. Now, I love my grandkids. I love playing with them. I love wrestling with them. I love tickling them. I love playing hide and seek with them. I love um, singing with them, reading songs, just acting goofy. I love every moment with my grandchildren. And every time when they come or, or, or we leave, I just miss them that much more. And then since they live in Atlanta, I don't get to see them a whole lot. So we get to FaceTime a lot. And it's really fun. It's, hey, Nana, hey, Pops. And then they're gone playing. That's it. (laughs) They love us so much. But when we're there, we're captive audiences and they can't go anywhere. And so I'm looking forward to that time. But listen, of all the things I love to do with my grandchildren, here's what I envision one day. This would be my greatest joy. Is one day when my grandchildren are older and I'm an older grandfather, I get to sit down with them and talk with them about the real issues of life. Just be able to tell them about myself, tell them how I came to faith in Christ, how God has transformed my life over the years. I look forward to that time where I can share with them some spiritual insights that they can take with them throughout their lives. Just to be able to invest in them in spiritual truth that could transform their lives for all of eternity. For those of you who are grandfathers and you are able to do that, 
That's my dream one day. For those of you who have had grandfathers and who have done that for you, that's your model one day. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are in chapter 7 right now. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, open them or turn them on to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're halfway through the series. And as we get to chapter 7, here's a unique picture that we have from Solomon. Up to this point, Solomon has told us everything is meaningless under the sun, everything's vanity, and under the sun, we're referring to that horizontal life. A life without Jesus is empty. And then when we get to chapter 7, it's almost like our granddaddy sits down with us, and he's going to give us some insight into life, because remember, Solomon has tried it all. He's gone through all of these experiments with everything that you can imagine. He's the wealthiest, most powerful man, wisest man on the planet. And what does he do? Here's what he kind of does. It's like he invites us to his home. He's saying, I want you to come sit down with me. He sets us around his coffee table. He comes up to us and he pours us each a strong cup of black coffee because that's the way he likes it. And as we're sitting there, Enjoying this wise old seasoned saint. In chapter seven, he's going to give us some proverbs for life. And there are 14 verses, and I've taken these 14 verses and I've broken them down into seven proverbs. And this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at seven proverbs for our life. They're coming from Solomon, but ultimately they're coming from the Holy Spirit And while we might think in our mind we're sitting around the table with Solomon, we're really sitting around the table with our Heavenly Father. And he's going to give us seven key Proverbs. Now, here's how we're going to do it today. I've put the Proverbs in my own words. We'll look at that first, and then we'll go to the Scripture. So what we'll do is we'll read a little bit, we'll talk a little bit, make some application. Read a little bit, talk a little bit, make some application. And because I have seven That means I have five minutes on each one. Now, let me tell you what not do. Don't pull out your phones and set the timer. And when five minutes is up, start waving your hand at me, okay? I'm gonna do the best I can to spend only five minutes. And those of you who know me well, you know that's gonna be a challenge. And so I'm gonna do the best I can to get through these seven Proverbs. But if there's anything that God's gonna say to us today, these are seven things that we can take in our lives, and they can transform us. Before we jump in, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would guide me today as I speak your truth to the people who are here. And Father, you would use your word to change our lives. Amen. All right, first Proverbs. All the Proverbs are in my words, but they come straight from the scripture. Proverb number one, who you are on the inside is more important than what people see on the outside. This is what Solomon begins with. Who you are on the inside is way more important than what people see on the outside. We're sitting around a coffee table. We each have our cup of coffee. Solomon sits back and he says this to us. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. And we're like, whoa, man, he's already getting kind of heavy on us here. And so these two Proverbs seem to be two different ones, but they go together. 
And is talking about what's on the inside is more important than what's on the outside. He begins with this. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. The word precious ointment means expensive cologne, expensive perfume, something that's very, very costly, you know, kind of like Old Spice. I mean, way beyond that, okay. But it is something very costly. And here's what he's saying. He said, listen, you could spend all your time taking care of the outside. You could buy expensive cologne. You could buy expensive perfume. You could go to the finest gym. You can have a trainer. You can work out. You can have the best shaped body. You can wear the most expensive clothes. You can have an incredible tan. You can have Botox injections. You can have a facelift. But none of that matters when your friends sit around a table and your name comes up and they all roll their eyes because they know something's not right on the inside. And what is Solomon saying? He's saying, listen, a good name, character is what people remember. Character is what people want to see. A godly character that will make a difference in the lives of other people. We're living in a culture today where everything's focused externally, isn't it? Check out social media. Everything tells us what you should look like, what you should wear, what shape you should be in, and people give all their attention to the external. And what Solomon is saying to us, no, 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 no. Don't focus on the outside. It's a godly character that is authentic that people will remember. Then he says in the second part of this, something that doesn't seem to fit. Death, the day of death is better than the day of birth? Are you kidding me? The, how can the day of death be better than the day of birth? People celebrate with great anticipation the day of birth, but they, you know, the day of death is something that we really don't want to talk about. What does he mean? He means this. On the day of birth, when a child is born, you have in your hands great potential. You have great potential, but here's what you don't know. You don't know that child's personality. You don't know that child's strengths. You don't know that child's abilities. You don't even know if that child is left-handed or right-handed. The only thing that child can do is squirm and make stinky diapers. That's it. But on the day of death, everyone remembers who you are. And when you die, you will leave a testimony. You will leave a legacy. And you will either leave a legacy that smells or one that's a fresh aroma. And he's saying this, listen, you live your life in such a way that when people remember you when you're gone, they remember the character of Jesus that's being lived through you. One pastor told me this. He said, Phil, live your life in such a way that nobody has to lie at your funeral. <laughs> so Solomon says, a good name, what's inside is more important than what's outside. And you write that down. Then he moves to the second one. He sits back and he says, a funeral is more impactful than a wedding. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, man, you just talk about death is better than birth. And now you're telling us it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a wedding. Here's how he says it. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. What he's saying is this. He says, a funeral is way more impactful than a wedding. Now let's say in our culture, we would not agree with that. 
We love to go to weddings, but funerals, nobody wants to go to a funeral. We have to go to funerals, but we don't think of it as being something that is very impactful. When you go to a wedding, man, it's celebratory. It's feast. Man, the bride and the groom are there. The wedding party is there. The music's uplifting. Everybody's smiling. I mean, there is free food. There is free drink. There is free cake. You know, the operative word there is everything's free. And so you go to that, and there's dancing, and there's celebration. Solomon's not against laughter. He's not against any of those things. Read through Proverbs and you will find over and over and over him talking about the importance of laughter for the soul. But what he's saying is this, when people go to a wedding, nobody thinks about the serious issues of life. We just flirt through, have a great time, celebrate, high five, we go home. But when you go to a funeral, everybody's thinking of the same thing and here's what they're thinking, the end of all mankind. When you go to a funeral, every person that walks into that building on that moment is thinking about death. They're thinking about eternity. They're thinking about what's beyond them. And when they go to a funeral, people understand when they see a casket there that if, unless the Lord Jesus returns, when I take my last breath, that's where I will be. There's a day when every one of us is going to come to the reality of death. And he says, the wise person goes to a funeral And they begin to contemplate the reality of eternity. When you go to a funeral, you start thinking about one day I'm going to stand before God. One day I am going to stand before the creator of the universe. One day I'm going to give an account before a holy God. One day I'm going to look to see how I can have access into heaven. And the only way that I can have access into eternal life is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And for the believer, we recognize this, that one day, every hope, every joy, every reality of faith becomes a reality. And I will step into the glories of heaven of what we just sang about. And I'll stand before my Savior face to face. And I will sing, I can only imagine. No. (laughs) But you see the reality of that? Here's what Solomon's saying. He say, listen, it is more impactful for you to consider the things of eternity than to just celebrate your life away. And he's asking us to consider our relationship with God. Now, what happens to the fool? Notice what he says to the fool. He says that to the fool, they run and they do not consider the reality of death. And so what he's saying to us is when we get to these places, it is impactful for us to think of eternity. And that's what he's saying to us. You're sitting back and you're thinking, wow, man, this is heavy. He gets up and he pours you each a little more coffee because it's gotten cold. He sits back and he says, oh, one more thing. Suffering brings a deep gladness to the heart that laughter cannot deliver. Man, he's going, there he is again, man. He's talked about death so far. He's talked about a funeral. Now he's talking about suffering over laughter. Has this guy been just watching way too much cable news? I mean, he needs to lighten up. But what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, in those times of sorrow, there's deeper gladness to the heart than times of just laughter. Here's how he says it. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. And by sadness, of face, the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He's saying, listen, there's something that suffering does in the human heart that brings a gladness that no party ever can. It's not in the midst of party that you learn deep things. It's always in the areas of suffering that we learn deep things. Now, let's be honest. I'd rather go to a comedy show than a cancer ward. I would rather go to a restaurant than a rehabilitation center. I'd rather go to a party than to persecution. And when we go to those things, it's lighthearted. But it's in those difficult, dark times where God does an incredible work in us that he cannot do in any other place. And here's the problem with suffering. When we are going through times of pain, when we do suffer, we can blame God for it. We can get angry with him. But here's what I notice: When we go through really difficult times, we really show the world and ourselves who we are. You know what rises out of us? Things we don't like, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, resentment, all of those things. And yet that's why God uses suffering, whether it's my own doing or his plan. Because in the midst of that, God is much more interested in taking away the pain. He's going to the heart of the issue that causes the pain. No good doctor would would medicate pain. Every good doctor would go to the source of pain. And many times as Christians, when we go through struggles, what do we tend to do? We cry out to God. We say, take away this pain, take away this pain. And God says, no, 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 I'm not going to take away the pain. What I'm going to do is spiritual surgery will take away the cause of the pain. And I'm going to go deep. And when we go through those times, the wise people run to him and trust him. It's like going through spiritual surgery. And God has you in the operating room and with his spiritual scalpel, he is cutting away the areas of your life that need to be removed. And you as a believer, you have friends in the waiting room who are brothers, sisters in Christ and they are praying for you, praying for you as God does his surgery and they're waiting for the surgery to be done so they can join with you and the gladness of your heart would be not just pain gone, but the cause of the pain has been remedied by God's hand. And when we go through suffering, that's what he does. And we're called to embrace that as God does his work. Now, let me show you what the fools do. They run to mirth. They want to medicate their pain. A fool doesn't want to deal with the real symptoms of their life. They want to medicate the pain. So what do they do? They run to all kinds of things that can numb their pain. Binge on Netflix hour after hour. Get my mind off of the things of the struggles of my life. Maybe alcohol will do it. Maybe drugs will do it. Maybe going to a porn site will do it. Maybe if I can just have relationship after relationship, maybe I can medicate my pain in food. And then what happens? The fool runs to the wrong sources. And here's what Solomon's saying to us and God is saying to us. When you're in the middle of a suffering and a difficult time, let God do his surgery. Instead of trying to medicate your pain and pretend it's not there, let him do the cutting and the surgery and the operation that needs to happen so that when you walk out of that, there's a gladness of heart. And with that is a removal of the pain. So he's given us these three. And now number four, he gets more lighthearted. Finally, thank goodness, He tells us something that sounds a little bit better. So we sit back and he sits back and he looks around, scratches his head and he says, oh, I got a good one for you. Number four, 
A truthful friend is more helpful than flattering fools. A truthful friend is better to you than a bunch of people who sing your praises. Here's how he puts it. He says in verses five and six, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. I love the way he puts this. Here's Solomon, great wise man, most powerful man in the world. One of the things he delighted in is that he had obviously a group of men around him were willing to tell the truth. Now, it's one thing to say, I have good friends. It's another thing to say, I have truthful friends. And he's saying here, it is best to have truthful friends. Can you imagine being a friend of Solomon, being a truthful friend, walking into the palace, standing before his throne and say, Solomon, here's the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem, Solomon. Can you imagine doing that? Well, apparently Solomon had people that he trusted and he entrusted to. Now, let me say this. We love truthful friends, don't we? As long as they're truthful about other people. Yeah, we can agree with them, but it's when a truthful friend comes and tells you something that hurts. Here's what I've discovered. We have normal, um, I think, reactions and responses to that. When somebody comes and points out something of your life, the first thing we want to do is deny it. Uh-uh, that ain't true. Uh-uh. And then what we want to do, we want to defend it. Oh, well, yeah, maybe that is true. But if she wouldn't have done that, or if he wouldn't have said that, then I wouldn't have acted that way. And then we deflect. Oh, yeah, you want to point out my truth? Well, since you're doing it, let me tell you about you. And then finally, we delight in it. And we come to the place where people who tell us the truth are the things we need to hear. The man that surrounds himself with fools is a fool. The man who surrounds himself with yes men is a fool because all he wants is people to sing his praises and honor him. One of the things I'm very glad about at Scotts Hill is we have an incredible culture among our staff and all of our ministry team. And we are transparent and we're honest with one another. Tomorrow, our pastors will get together and they will evaluate all the aspects of the ministries this week and they're gonna evaluate all the aspects of this service. We'll go over announcements. We're gonna grill Tucker tomorrow. We're gonna have an opportunity of talking to him about that. We're gonna grill Donnie as he's leading worship. And guess what? They get to grill me on my sermon. Now, I'm not gonna be here tomorrow, so have fun. So, (laughs) but, but I don't always like it. I don't. But here's the good thing. I'm hearing from the perspectives of different people in different stages in life, and it helps me to be better. And when that happens, I don't feel defensive. I feel loved. I've had pastors come into my office and say, Phil, I need to sit down. You said this the other day, and I felt like that's not accurate, and it doesn't betray the character of Christ. I don't feel attacked. I feel loved. And I have the opportunity to have people in my office and say, let's talk about this. And this is what I saw. When people speak truth to you and they're speaking to it in love, this is something that helps you. It doesn't hurt you. Now, what does the fool do? I love the way he says the fool. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. What in the world does that mean? The Hebrews, when they cooked their food, they cooked outside and they built a fire and they wanted to keep the temperature a certain 
temperature. But sometimes they needed to bolster the temperature for that cooking. So they would take dry thorns, which were very flammable, and they would throw the dry, those dry thorns in there, and instantly they would ignite, and the temperature of that pot would rise. What he's saying here is a fool is like dry thorns. He catches on fire and he giggles. It's a person who's on fire and rather than seeing the serious nature of it, they laugh their way through it. How does this connect in this context? It's people who are told the truth, but rather than adhering to the truth, they are set on fire and laugh through this burning. The person, maybe he's spoken to by a friend about their marriage. And the person says, there's nothing wrong with our marriage. There's nothing wrong with it. And rather than taking the advice, they deny it and their family is on fire and they giggle through it. Or somebody comes and speaks about their children. And rather than listening to truth about their kids, they bow up, they defend their kids and they're on fire. They're laughing through it while their family burns. Or maybe it's a businessman who has become a workaholic And a dear friend comes to him and he says, look, brother, you are working way too hard. You're neglecting your your family. I'm not. I'm providing for them. And he is on fire and he doesn't even know it. And I wonder how many marriages could have been saved. How many families could have been saved by adhering the truth of a dear friend rather than burning to the ground while we laugh. So he says, listen, a truthful friend, take them to heart. If they love you and they speak the truth to you, this is of God. Oh, he sits back and you're taking your notes. Then he gives us proverb number five. Standing on godly convictions protects from a corrupt heart. Now, we're not gonna spend much time on this because the next one I wanna spend some time on. Standing on godly convictions protects from a corrupt heart. Here's how he says it in verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. What is he saying? He's saying this. Is the word oppression means weight. It's heaviness. And he's saying that the righteous person has a heaviness in doing what's right. And a righteous person has a heaviness in doing what's just. And a righteous person is driven crazy when other people are not doing what is right. But there's a tendency to be pulled by the things of the world. There's a tendency of the world to tell you and to guide you not to do what's right, but to compromise. And when he says that there's a bribe that corrupts the heart, this bribe is a payment, is a payoff. The word corrupt means to be poisoned. The word heart is not a physical muscle. For the Hebrews, it was the wellspring of all words, actions, thoughts, and deeds. And when you poison the well, you poison everything. So here's what he's saying. The person who has deep convictions of righteousness and holiness needs to stand his ground. Why? Because the world is pulling. The world wants you to give in. The world wants you to pay the bribe. The world wants you to lay down that conviction to follow what the culture says. And when you start stepping into the culture and stepping out of your convictions, then what will happen is there will become a poison towards those heartfelt convictions that may never be regained. Let me tell you, I've been here for 29 years. Not much surprises me in ministry anymore. I've seen it all. 
And I've seen families who have had strong convictions for their children, but the pull of the world has caused them to change their convictions and now their children have nothing to do with Christ or Christianity. I've seen men and women who have had strong convictions about certain areas of their life and the world has pulled and pulled and they paid the bribe. And now those convictions are the things of the past. And I want to tell you, this is sad to say, but even in the body of Christ, in the church, those of you who are wanting to stand on godly convictions, there'll be times where you're going to find yourself by yourself. Because God is saying, when you walk and stand on your convictions, it protects us from the poison of the world that wants to change our thinking and mold us into what the world says. It's pretty heavy. Number six, looking to the future is better than living in the past. Looking to the future is better than living in the past. Here's how he says in verses eight through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why will the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Let me break this down. There are three parts of it. He says, first of all, have an end goal in mind. When you're living your life, regardless of what it is, have an end goal in mind. Know where you're wanting to be headed. If you don't have an end goal, you just meander through life and anything that happens good, you're happy with. But when you have an end goal for your life, for your business, for your marriage, here's what happens. When you have an end goal, it increases patience. Why? Because I see where I need to be. I'm here, I need to be there, and it requires patience and endurance for me to get all the way to this point. But when I have an end goal in mind, not only does it increase patience, it decreases anger. And the anger begins to reside in me because I see where I need to be. And the patience leads me to that. And so with an end goal, you begin to live with patience and that increases and anger decreases. And then he says this, say not. Do not say. Don't say. Don't you dare say. Don't you dare never, ever, ever, ever say these words. You get it? Here it is. Why were the former days better than these? Don't ever say, man, I wish I was in the good old days. Anybody here ever wish you were in the good old days? Let me tell you about the good old days. We have so romanticized the good old days that they're really bad days where we've forgotten the really bad stuff. A lot of us are like um, Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite. If coach would have put me in in 1982, we'd have won state. And he lives by that. And many people do that. And here's what he's saying. When you have an end goal in mind, stay with me. When you have an end goal in mind, patience increases, anger decreases, and you stop living your life looking in the rearview mirror because you're moving forward. How does that work in a Christian life? Here it is. What's the goal and goal of the Christian life? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the end goal. And as I'm moving towards the end goal and I've got my eyes focused on Christ, then what happens is the patience begins to grow. The endurance begins to grow. I begin to lay aside anger and then I quit living for the past and I'm living for the future. How does that work in your life personally? Let me give you an illustration. 
What's the end goal of marriage? Let's take marriage. The end goal of marriage is to glorify Christ. And, and, and the end goal of marriage is to bring honor to him and to paint a picture of Jesus' love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. So my end goal with my wife is to love her like Jesus loves the church. Her end goal in her life is to respect me and to submit to me as the church submits to Christ in a loving leadership role. Now, the the ultimate end is we press forward towards that. And if that's the end goal in mind, here's what we understand. That as I pursue the end goal to glorify Christ, as she pursues the end goal to glorify Christ, there's an increase in patience with one another. There's a decrease in anger with one another. And we no longer live to the back. We live to the future where one day Christ will be clearly glorified in our marriage. That's the picture. Now I want to say, marriage isn't just a bunch of uh, um, champagne and strawberries. It's not. That's not the end goal. Now, there are times where marriage and our marriage can feel like Valentine's Day, but there are times our marriage feels like Halloween. It's scary. (laughs) But the goal is not happiness. The goal is holiness. And as I move towards the end to glorify Christ, these things... Increase patience, decreases anger, and keeps me living forward instead of backwards. We can make that application with anything, even in the life of our church. Let me just tell you how it works out in the life of our church. Our end goal at Scotts Hill is that people would join God in his work of transforming their life. That means we want people to come to know who Jesus is, to surrender their lives to him in a relationship with him. But it doesn't stop there. It continues the rest of their life as they walk with Jesus. There is constantly a transformation from one glory to the next. And those individuals are growing, growing to be more and more and more and more like Jesus. That's the end goal. And in the end goal, as we're living with one another, we're patient with one another. We give each other room because we are all jacked up in some areas of our lives. And we've got to be patient And we don't become angry with one another. And we move towards that end goal of helping each other to become like Christ. And then we look forward to the upward call that's in Christ Jesus. That's our goal here. And I want to tell you something. When I came here, I came for the long haul. When I came here, I came for the purpose of God, I hope one day I can retire here. I remember Jim Dunn and I having conversations about us two retiring in Wilmington because of our ministries. We have a lot of staff members who are here for the long goal. I've had a lot of opportunities to be at other churches, very large churches. But God said, no, this is where I have you planted. And this is where I've been here. And I'm looking for the opportunity to retire unless you fire me before that comes. And here's what I love about our staff. You look at the the longevity of our staff and you will see that many of them are here for the long haul. And we're committed to the end goal of what God has for us. So Solomon's given us six Proverbs. By now, he's like you, he's tired. His coffee's grown cold. He's thinking, I need a nap. It's time for a nap, but listen, I don't have time for you guys to come back tomorrow. 
So here's the last one I want to give, and here's what he says. Godly wisdom is a protection for our life. Of all the things that I can tell you, wisdom is a protection. Here's what he says. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. He's talking about wisdom. And what does wisdom do? It protects our life. When we walk in wisdom, we walk in godly wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the right application of biblical truth. And when I apply God's word in my life in such a way that I'm walking in wisdom, it becomes a protection. It protects me in two ways. Number one, it protects me against human pitfalls. Because we can make crazy decisions with our finances. We can make crazy decisions with our possessions. But whenever I walk in wisdom, it protects me from making dumb decisions that end up hurting me. But there's another way that it protects us. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who has made it crooked? God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? When I walk in wisdom, it protects me from trying to fight against the purposes of God in my life. It causes me to slow down and not fight against God's divine purposes. Because sometimes God puts a bend in the road. And sometimes we want to straighten that out. God, you don't understand. This is where I want to go. And God's saying, no, this is what I've determined. And rather than trying to fight against the providence of God, we join in with him and we say, Father, I can't see the future. You've seen it. You've been in it. You know everything about it. But I'm going to trust you for it. I'm going to walk in wisdom. You know what? Kind of walking in our life is like a jigsaw puzzle. When you think about a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, any of you like to put puzzles together? Yeah, I like four-piece puzzles, really big, you know. Uh, and they're all corners, so it fits really well. My wife loves jigsaw puzzles, the thousand-piece. I did something one time I'll never do again. I took one piece and hid it until she finished. And I got to put the last piece in. That was a bad mistake. <laughs> But a jigsaw puzzle, where's the first place we start? We start with the edges, don't we? Why? We want to create a boundary. And then what happens is we get into all those colors and they purposely design it so where it all looks the same. And what do we keep doing? We're trying to make a mess of all the middle. We're looking at the pieces. We go to the box and we're looking at the box. Oh, it must be right there. It must be right there. And we're finding it and we're holding the box like it is an instruction guide. Here's the thing, when we are trying to put our life together and walking in obedience to Christ, there are a lot of times it is hazy, it is not clear. So we go to instruction guide, which is the word of God. And as we stay in the word of God and the wisdom begins to protect us and we begin to trust him for all matters of life. Then he concludes all of this. Your notebooks are full. He's out of coffee and he says this, he closes where he always leads us. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find anything that will be after him. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, in the good times, rejoice. When there are blessings, when family is there, when life is good, when everything is celebratory, bless him Rejoice, be joyful, 
But when things are tough, when things are dark, when things are struggling, praise him in the midst of that. Why? Because both are gifts from God. And in the midst of all of those things, we give him praise. Let me tell you, God's not asking us to do anything that he doesn't do himself. The picture of the cross is joy and sorrow. Every bit of it. The whole plan of redemption is joy and sorrow. All of heaven rejoiced when Jesus took on human form as a little baby in Bethlehem. And all of heaven wept when Jesus was misjudged. As Jesus lived his life perfectly before humanity, he was misjudged, he was mischaracterized, and in the garden the night before he was arrested, he wept so heavily that the drops of blood poured from his corpuscles. And he sweated drops of blood. And on the cross, it was sorrow. Beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a Roman cross for six hours, asphyxiating, unable to breathe, he dies. The father turns his back because of the sins of humanity placed upon him, sorrow. The disciples go and hide, fearing for their life. But then Sunday morning comes and there's joy. That he is alive, he is risen. The stone was rolled away. And let me say, the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out of the tomb. The stone was rolled away so we could get in the tomb and see that it's empty. And there's joy. There's joy. Believers, listen to me. If you're in a relationship with Christ, God has your best in mind. And his desire is to take the things of your life to make you the person he wants you to be. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, then the Lord Jesus is saying to you, oh, you can apply all these things. You can have behavior modification in your life, but they're not sustainable but it's only in a relationship with me can I bring you real joy so that you can face real sorrow because it's only in Christ that we can have eternal life. Now, I know I gave you a lot. I gave you a lot this morning. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit may take out of this for your heart, but out of these seven, maybe God has one for you, maybe two for you, Maybe your house is burning and you've been laughing and God is calling you to a place of repentance and returning. Maybe you've been too concerned about the external and God is saying, no, it's your godly character that I want people to see. Maybe you're so lost in medicating your pain that you can't even see the surgery that God is wanting to do in your heart. I don't know where you are, but I know this. It's not just Solomon before us. It is our heavenly father who is giving this truth that we might walk in a way that honors him. I wanna pray for us and then you'll be dismissed. We're gonna finish chapter seven next week and then we're gonna move pretty quickly to the rest of it. Thank you for turning those on. I am hot, burning up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I know it's a lot. I know it's heavy. But Father, as we take the truth of what we've heard today, may you work it deep within our hearts and one, two, maybe all seven, 
that we would seek to apply in our lives as you give us this incredible wisdom for living. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, if any are here today without Christ, that they would consider him and be willing to surrender all to him as Lord and Savior. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.